you. Today we're going to be talking about something that's a little bit difficult actually. I'd like to talk to you about testing and I want to begin in IKEA. And right away I know some of you are thinking that IKEA is a test and yes it is. If you can go to IKEA with your wife and not get into an argument after about an hour, you have a healthy marriage. You should probably consider leading a seminar on how to have a healthy marriage and invite the rest of us. We take our hats off to you. But that's not really what I want to talk about this morning because in IKEA they have a chair. The chair's like a lot of IKEA furniture, it's layers of wood glued and pressed together. And they test that chair, they want you to know how strong that chair is and so they have a machine that pushes a weight onto the chair, push, 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 thousands of times. Or take the, uh, the Q1 tower, last year Crystal and I were on the Gold Coast and uh, we took the kids up to the Q1 tower and there's an observation deck 230 metres up off the ground. When you're up there, just by one section of the window, there's some reinforced glass flooring. And I stepped on it, and I swear it creaked. And we just had breakfast, but you'd think that that sort of thing would be tested for the load of, you know, 14 elephants or something, but when I stepped on it, it creaked. There you go. Every day of our lives, we encounter roads, bridges, chairs, floors, that have been tested to bear a certain load and we should be grateful that that's the case actually. Imagine driving your car across a bridge that hadn't been tested for the weight of the car that you were driving. But this morning I want to talk to you about the spiritual weight load. How much are you engineered to carry? It's an important question because you are going to be tested. Now I know because we've been through a period of testing ourselves and I know that people here have been through periods of testing recently. For some of you, the test is like the IKEA chair test. Push, push, push. It's a repetitive test. And so it's not the heaviness of the testing, but the repetitiveness of the test that leaves you feeling like it's been enough. But for others, it's like 14 large elephants. It's the weight of the testing. It's a a death. It's a miscarriage. It's an illness. It's a job loss. These are heavy tests. And the weight of trials like this can overwhelm us. And so I'd like to look at a story in the scripture about testing today. It's it's found in Luke 22, as you know, we've just had it read. Jesus and his disciples are about to undergo the test of their lives. So let me set the scene for you. It's the night before Jesus is taken to the cross. He knows he's about to be betrayed and arrested. It's an intense period of testing, and we know this because Jesus begins and ends that little section telling his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's a watershed moment. The consequences are huge. If Jesus doesn't pass this test, everything falls apart. Now, to the outside observer, I'm not talking about God's view, I'm talking about the outside view. To the outside observer, the disciples look ready for this test. Okay? They're calm enough even to sleep. Uh, but the night before at dinner, they've said to Jesus, we'll follow you to jail. We'll follow you to death. And remember, just thinking about the outside observer, not not God's point of view. Jesus doesn't look like he's ready for this test. He's an emotional wreck. He's extremely distressed. He's troubled. He's in so much agony that his sweat falls like blood. And so you'd think looking on, the disciples are ready and Jesus was falling apart. But the disciples are about to fail miserably. Jesus is about to pass the most severe test that anyone has ever had to endure victoriously and so this morning I want to explore what makes the difference. 
But first, a word about trials, a word about testing. You see, I think every trial is either a test of our faith or it's a temptation for our faith to fail, depending on how we handle it. You know, you can never blame God for your disobedience and sin. James 1 tells us God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil, but rather we're tempted when we're carried away and enticed by our own sinful desires. But the Bible does say God is going to test us. He uses tests to refine us, to strengthen our faith, to deepen our love for him, to teach us to obey him no matter what the cost. And so the same trial can be a temptation to sin or a test to strengthen us if we walk by the Spirit. Satan wants to bring us down. God wants to establish us. It's like the difference between a competitor testing a car and a manufacturer. So the competitor wants to test the car and, and, that, and they want to find a flaw in the car to make it unfit for sale. But the manufacturer wants to expose the car to the most severe road conditions so that they can say, our car has stood the test. And this hour that Jesus and the disciples face is especially under the power of darkness. Satan wants to destroy God's plan by tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And so here's the question. What do we learn about Jesus and what do we learn about ourselves when we enter the time of testing? Well, first, we learn that we cannot pass the test. So in this passage, we learn something about ourselves. It's important information, actually. It's make or break. Because if you don't learn this, you'll live your life under an illusion. And it's an illusion that has the power to crush or destroy you, actually. So let's look at what we learn. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. I don't know if you've ever given someone a job. So parents, just before you've gone out, you've said to the kids, can you clear the table, please? And you get back and the plates are there and the food has to go in the bin. Or, uh, or maybe at work you've delegated something to someone else while you've covered the rest and you get back and they haven't done anything. In this passage... Jesus gives the disciples one job. But they're under stress, right? Jesus has told them one of them is going to betray him. Tensions are swirling. But they just have one job. I, just, I want you to pray. And it's an easy prayer too. This is an excuse prayer. It's like being asked to be excused from an exam. They're praying that they won't be tested. But look at what happens. Look at verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples... He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? Asked him. Get up and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. Two things to note. First, they stuff it. They had one job and they stuff it. Second, they get off super easy. For one thing, Luke kind of gives them an excuse. He says, he's pretty sympathetic. He says they're exhausted from sorrow. But I think even Jesus goes easy on them. He's more restrained than I would be. And I wonder if it's because Jesus knows they cannot pass this test. And what we learn about these disciples is important for us because I want to suggest that we cannot pass this test. We don't stand up very well under testing. You push us 50,000 times and we snap. You put us under the weight of a heavy load 
and we probably won't do very well. Here's what we learn. In our own strength, we always struggle when tested. But that's not the whole story. Because second, we see that Jesus was severely tested, but Jesus passed the test. Look at verse 41. Withdrawing about a stone's throw beyond them, Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly as the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, the, the overwhelming impression is one of loneliness. Here's Jesus in anguish and he's completely alone. One by one, his disciples have begun to abandon him. At the start of the chapter uh, 22, we read that Satan entered Judas. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And Susan read for us what happens when Jesus carried out this plan, when Judas carried out this plan. While Jesus was still speaking, verse 47, a crowd came up and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, as far as I can tell, there are two popular views of, Ju- of Judas. He's either the most evil, diabolical kind of character that's ever existed, the ultimate betrayer, or there's this kind of modern view of Judas, which is far more sympathetic. So, in the 80s, there was that movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. So, in that movie, uh, it's all about Judas carrying out this secret job from Jesus um, to, to help him fulfil his destiny and, and die on the cross. It makes Judas the catalyst actually, for Jesus' saving work on the cross. Then a couple of years ago, if you're kind of across the news, they dug up the so-called Gospel of Judas. And in that one, Jesus and Judas, uh, they're mates. And um, Jesus asked Judas to turn him into the Romans so he could kind of fulfil his mission. And Judas comes across as the only disciple who actually gets it. You couldn't come up with two more opposite views. He's the ultimate betrayer, Mr. Evil, or he's the hero, And I want to say to you this morning, from the Bible here, he's actually neither. The answer is, Judas is actually more like us. Or more accurately, we're more like Judas. I'll explain what I mean. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, everyone knows things are coming to a head. Finally, Jesus was going to do something. But all week, Jesus didn't do anything. He talked. He taught. He prayed. He talked. He taught. He prayed. And now it's Thursday. He still hasn't done anything. If anything, Jesus doesn't do anything and the opposition is swirling around and tensions are rising. Every disciple knows if Jesus goes down, they go down with him. And if you know the disciples, they're not prone towards humility, right? So we're going to see in a minute how they normally react but they're not normally prone to humility and self-correction. Yet when Jesus says in verse 23, one of them is going to betray him, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So my question is, 
why are they so uncharacteristically open to kind of self-examination at this point? Do you know why? It's because the thought had occurred to every single one of them. All of them had thought, is this time to bail? And the longer that Jesus did nothing, the more it occurred to them. Every disciple was capable of doing what Judas did. We're not very different to Judas. I don't know if that offends you. It offends me, but it's true. It's much easier to think Jesus, uh, Judas is a horrible monster, one of the worst sinners who's ever lived than someone just like me. But you know what? If we'd been there, we might have done just the same thing. Someone who's willing to follow Jesus when it benefits them, but when the heat's on, when it's going to cost us, we're willing to sell Jesus out. We can't pass this test on our own. But as bad as it was for Jesus to be abandoned by his friends, Jesus is facing a far more serious abandonment. He prays on the Mount of Olives. And when he prays, we see a Jesus that we haven't seen before. Up till now in Luke, he has been fearless. But here he is, distressed, in anguish. I want to tell you about a guy called Polycarp. Because you might be thinking this, there are actually people who face death with more courage than Jesus, it seems. There's a guy called Polycarp. When Polycarp, who was an early Christian martyr, faced death, they were going to nail him to a stake. And he said, no, 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 no. no. Leave me as I am. For he that has granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain at the stake unmoved, even without the security which you seek from the nails. And as he burned, he prayed a prayer of thanks to God for allowing him to die as a martyr. You know, Jesus in the garden has none of that courage. He's in agony. And Luke, who's a doctor, says his sweat was like drops of blood. It could be a medical condition called hematidroises. When people under stress, the blood vessels burst. Why is Jesus more overwhelmed by his death than others have been, even his own followers? Now, I've got to be careful. Obviously, we can't enter into everything that Jesus faced, and it's it's holy ground to, to kind of get in his shoes. But I think death itself would have been a shock to Jesus. And death is what? It's It's a sign of God's judgment on the world. It's God's curse on the fallen world. It's an ugly reminder of of sin. And so he must have recoiled as he thought about death as, as just an idea. But I think the main source of Jesus' anguish is the realization of what it would mean for him. The sinless Son of God, one with the Father from eternity, was going to bear the sins of his people on the cross. Isaiah says, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. Paul puts it this way in the New Testament, God made him who had no sin be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In the dark, when no one was looking, he experienced the abandonment of his friends but he's also preparing to drink the full contents of the cup of God's wrath which is the the Old Testament symbol for the judgment of God for sinners. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, take it from me, yet not my will but yours be done. It's agony, but it's agony in communion. 
He always knows that the Father's there. But I want to say, do you see what's happening? Do you see what Jesus is saying about the Father? Because who's behind the coming events? Yeah, God is not a powerless bystander watching helplessly as the powerful kind of men carry out a murderous plan. He is the one bringing this event to pass. And this father is the one with the power to bring a different set of events to bear if he wants to. It's almost unthinkable that a father would do this to his son. Sometimes children have to go through short-term pain for long-term gain. And sometimes that's just what a father has to do. Wendell came off his scooter about two weeks ago and opened up his knee. My son's three years old. And he looked at the inside of his knee and he, could, and he was shaking. And I said, buddy, I'm going to have to get a Band-Aid. No, no, because he knew that when I put that Band-Aid on his knee that I'd have to touch the wound and, and disturb it and he'd be in more pain. I didn't want to hurt him. I wanted to heal him. But as I held him, he looked at me with bewilderment. Dad, why are you doing this to me? Why are you trying to scare me? Short-term pain for long-term gain, but it was just beyond his understanding. And yet there it is. This is God the Father's will for his Son. And Jesus prays, is there another way? Is there a plan without pain? But at the same time, he's willing, if there is no other way, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so he prays. He prays for courage and strength to see the plan through. He prays that his will will be moulded to his Father's. And even though God's mind is decided, he, he answers Jesus' prayer. Verse 43, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. The obvious question to ask is, why would a father do this to a son? I just want to rule out some possibilities. The first thing to absolutely rule out is that Jesus deserved it. Jesus did not deserve it. If you flick back to the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 3, the best part of three years earlier, Jesus is beginning his ministry and he goes down to be baptised and he comes up out of the water and he's praying and heaven is opened. And the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven says this, You are my son. I love you and I'm well pleased with you. Whatever the reason, it's not because Jesus deserved it. The second thing to say is it's not because it's plan B. It's not a last minute, second best kind of proposal to cope with an unexpected outcome. This has been the plan since the beginning. I want to show you Isaiah 53. This was written seven centuries before this night in the garden. Let me read you some. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This had always been the plan. But it's these verses that also start to give us some of the puzzle pieces as to why this isn't the most 
greatest injustice in history. See up there in verse 6, Jesus might have, had, might have done nothing wrong, but that's not the case for us. Every human being has done wrong. We've turned our own way, we've followed our own path. It's the basic attitude of rebellion. And the Bible calls that attitude sin. And it's an attitude that demands God's justice. And that's the cup of God's wrath. Yeah, that was a cup that was reserved for us. That's what we deserve, but it's not what we receive. Because look at verse 5. It talks about someone else who receives it instead. It was Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions. It was Jesus who was crushed for our iniquities. You know the punishment that brought us peace? It was on him. It's the great exchange. His death for our life. And so God replaces our dirt and our crap with Jesus' purity and his goodness. Our sin, our death for his life. It's the great exchange. But why us? Why us over his only son? You know, part of the answer is, and you might not have realised this, it's only temporary. It's just a stepping stone. It's not the end. It's there in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, yes. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands and after the suffering of his soul, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. God is promising this is not the end, my son. In fact, by death, you will defeat death. You'll be resurrected in glory, you'll live into eternity and you'll see your offspring. Do you know know that if his guilt offering has paid for your sin, then that is you? You're the ones that Jesus sees. And so the Father and ultimately Jesus as well, they're ready to to have short-term pain for eternal gain of glory and freedom and life. I don't know, maybe Jesus spent that night in the garden thinking about these promises, promises of victory and life and success, of offspring of restoration. That's part of the answer. Yeah, the other part of the answer is... The other part of the answer is we can't pass this test. And God loves us. We can't pass this test. And God loves us. And that is amazing. Beautiful grace. I want to pull some of those threads together now and ask the question, what can we learn from Jesus in our time of testing? Now, everyone's testing is different and you're all going to respond to the different tests you face in life differently. And I've always said there's the the repetitive test or there's the big test. People are complex. God's ways are complex. So I just want to acknowledge first up that anything I say... um, has to reflect that reality. But even so, I think there are some encouragements that we can find in this passage. So I've got four or five reflections 
that will hopefully be helpful for us as we think about different people in our church, our brothers and sisters, the friends whom we love, um, people who have been fired from work, learned of their parents' divorce, uh, had a death in the family, or endured infertility or whatever it is. And so the first one is the most important one. And that's that God is our Father. Remember poor little Wendell with his, with his hurt knee? Yeah, if it's true that I have greater wisdom than my three-year-old boy, isn't it possible that our Father in Heaven who knows all things perfectly and completely has greater wisdom about what's good for me than I do? Even if it seems bad from my perspective? Not only does God surpass me in knowledge, but God also surpasses me in goodness. He's actually a better dad than I am. We learnt that in Luke 11. Jesus told us that. He loves Wendell more than I do. He's all-knowing, he's all-good, he's all-powerful. And so when pain comes, it's from a father who knows the outcome of the pain and he's shaped the test for your good. I don't remember who said it first, but if we knew everything that God knew, we'd ask for everything that God gives us. If we knew everything that God knew, we'd ask for everything he gives us. We have a father who loves us. Number two, the more we know God's will, the father's will, the more comfort we'll find. Yeah, in jazz, it's a genre of music that um, they played jazz standards, so songs that everyone knows. And the beginning of those songs are familiar and the end of those songs are familiar. But in the middle, what they do is they improvise. And they just kind of go wherever. And um, that's a bit of fun. But sometimes those improvisations aren't predictable. And sometimes, actually, as you're listening, it can be a bit painful because you don't actually know how to listen. The song actually puts you on edge. And you can't relax like you did at the beginning when you knew how it was going to go. And that kind of pain as you listen to jazz is common until you get to know the artist, not just the song. And so when you get to know the artist, you begin to see when they're doing something, when they're trying something you don't expect, when they want to get your attention. And, you know, God's creations follow, there's a rhythm to it. And so in the Proverbs, uh, we read that if you obey the wisdom of the Proverbs, you'll receive the fruit of faithful living. Um, if you work hard, your barns will be full. If you raise your kids faithfully uh, to know Jesus, they won't wander from the faith, that kind of thing. But then, that's the general rhythm, but then life kind of throws up these improvisations. And what they do, they, they, they put us on edge because they're not predictable. And so godly people get swallowed up by sin and we grieve about it. The stock market crashes and it happens to Christians and non-Christians all the same. And all we can think about is our pain. And that pain consumes us until we get to know God. And you begin to see that when God does something unexpected, he's showing us something. And the more you get to know God and his ways, the more you begin to kind of lift your head from, from the discomfort to kind of see kind of what he's doing. He's changing us. He's, he's making us more like Jesus. And, you know, normally it's the hundredth or thousandth time that God's given us some kind of pain that we're actually able to say with Paul, you know, his grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. 
third lesson I want to take is that temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, take the cup from me. If there's a plan without pain, can we do that? See, I think many people shy away from praying uh, about the things that tempt us because we're too ashamed of them. But Jesus just he prayed honestly about what was going on for him. Now, sometimes there's an adrenaline rush when we think about sin, when we think about temptation. And what happens is when we feel that rush of adrenaline, we already feel like we've failed God. And, and what we do, we just trudge off into sin. But I want to say temptation is not sin. It's what you do next, that's sin. And so I just want to encourage you that because I think that simple truth can free us to boldly approach the throne of grace in the heat of the test. Number four, it was when Jesus submitted his will to God's will that he received heavenly strength. The... Um, the New Testament kind of commentary on that night in the garden is found in Hebrews chapter 5. This is what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learnt obedience from what he suffered. So every time you pray, and lead us not into temptation, you're warning yourself that you need help. You're acknowledging that God is the one who can help you if you let him. It's antidote to pride, the, the pride that says, that, God, I've got this. So every now and again, friends of mine train for the tough mutter. I watch from a distance. But um, it's an obstacle course that puts people through mud and barricades and obstacles and, and that kind of thing. And they travel far away to go to these events and they pay a lot of money. And at the end they get a T-shirt and they get a, a photo that they can brag about on Facebook with. And uh, I think sometimes in our prayer times, we, we need to remember that what we're doing, we're daily coming to God to say, we admit, we admit that we need your help, not bring it on, God. I'm a tough disciple. I, you know, I can handle everything you're going to throw at me today. It's the opposite. It's when Jesus submitted his own will to God's will that he received heavenly strength. I just want to encourage you one last time. The disciples in this whole story, they come off as pretty hopeless. And um, I just want to show you that they actually learnt their lesson and encourage each other that we can learn this lesson with them. When Jesus is arrested, he does have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Um, they all give in to temptation, they desert him and disappear and he goes to the cross alone. But three days later, Jesus rises and a couple of days after that they receive his spirit and that makes all the difference because early in the second volume of Luke's work which is called Acts the disciples again find themselves in a crisis. They're arrested for preaching the gospel and they're interrogated and they're told when they're released you will be punished if you keep preaching. How do they respond? Well this time they respond as Jesus told them to in the garden. They gather together they have a church prayer meeting and they pray for courage. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. The effect? They were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. They learnt through their failure, they learnt to pray and God answers that prayer by giving them boldness through his spirit. It's the Father's strength. I just want to say that can be our experience. We can learn from their failure in the garden to pray to our Father in times of crisis, in the time of test. And may this be our experience too, since we too have the Spirit of God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus was obedient and drank drank the cup that was reserved for us. We thank you that that was the plan from the beginning of time. We thank you that you love us. Father, in our time of testing, help us to cast all our cares upon our Heavenly Father, kind and merciful, the one who from beginning of time demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.